How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Eucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. There's a high fly ball from King of OX Sports. That's it deep to left field, and it's a gutter. Big fly, Nolan Arenado. There's a moment for you. Welcome to the Meyer Jensen Sports Open Line. And the driving jam time. And the Billikens win this one. Meyer Jensen, a personal injury law firm, because sometimes the gloves have to come off. MeyerJensen.com. Comeback pattern caught. Touchdown, Kansas City. Now, Sports Open Line on America's Sports Voice, KMOX. All right, let's get it rolling, man. We got one hour to go tonight, and I think some of the things we're going to get into tonight will still be developing stories as we go through, um, you know, the the next, well, let's say three or four days. Uh, we're going to start off with what we learned today about um, the the labor issues, the lockout, if you will, and we had the owners and the players get together, and holy crap, they didn't bail after 15 minutes. What do you know? What do you know? And And look, if you are the kind of person that pays a lot of attention to this stuff, like, you know, like me because of my work, or if you're just not doing it for work, but you just do it because you care about baseball, um, this this was the week. This, this has been the week to keep an eye on pretty much for the last three months. It's the last week where the only way the regular season can start on time is if you get something done now. That wasn't true last week, and it wasn't true in any week before this one. This is it. If you don't get something done, and, I, and by this week, I mean within the next seven days, because you, know, you could get it done, who knows, maybe even a little bit early next week, but we know we're down to the wire here. Rob Manfred mentioned last week that February 28th is kind of the last day, the soft deadline, if you will, for starting the season on time on March 31st. They want to have four weeks of spring training it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time before spring training starts to get all the players to where they need to go from where they currently are to wrap up free agency, to get through arbitration, to hold the rule five draft. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen. So, and by the way, some of that stuff can still happen while spring training is going on, but you're probably looking at five, six days from the time an agreement is reached, not just agreed upon, but like done deal to get everybody where they need to go. And then the other stuff will start and you can have all, again, that can all go on simultaneously. So to, for any realistic chance, if you're looking at four weeks, 
We're talking about spring training starting by March 3rd. And again, you know, they don't have to be exactly four weeks. Instead of 28 days, it could be 26 days. You know, what, but what, what, what Rob Manfred said was, we don't want to do this in 20 days like we did in 2020 coming out of COVID. That turned out bad. We had some extra injuries. You know, th- that, that was a bit chaotic. Having another week would be great. But if it's 26 days instead of 28, they're not going to be like, well, that's it. Cancel the season. <laughs> I mean, if it's 26, they'll make 26 work. But we're getting down to to the nuts and bolts time. We're getting down to the time where this is the deadline. Look, what are we always what are we always told with negotiations? It takes a deadline to spur action. Well, we're there. This is the week. And that's why you had multiple owners in person in the meetings this week, members of the negotiating committee. That's why we had a lot of big name players who are union reps in person at these meetings. And today, the meeting supposedly went on for a little bit more than five hours. Not, I think from what I can understand, following Evan Drellick, from following uh, Chelsea James, who does a really good job, um, and a couple of others that are down there covering this. And by the way, the meetings being at Roger Dean Stadium is interesting. Um, not not really, but I don't, know, I don't know why I said it. It's interesting to me because I know that area. Otherwise, it's not really all that interesting. They could have picked anywhere. I just It is interesting, though, that they picked there. Of all the places, not Arizona, not, you know, Yankees training camp, but, you know, the Cardinals one. But it's also kind of in between a lot of major airports. It's not too far away from a lot. Plus, I think a lot of wealthy dudes have places in the in the area, West Palm and all of that. So probably makes some sense. A lot of a lot of rich dudes like that area of Florida. Uh, anyway, regardless of that, that doesn't really matter. But you had the longer meetings today. You know, we didn't get a lot of detail out of it. Some of the reporting was that there was some movement on the pre-arbitration bonus pool. Uh, the owners came up five million on their offer, uh, and, and that's not a lot, by the way. But the two sides are still still working on like how many players are going to be involved in that, and you know, I, I think they'll solve that. The biggest one, I think, the biggest area where there's going to have to be give and take is going to be the collective bargaining tax. The CBT seems to be the most difficult thing at the moment. And not just the number, right? I think we should all agree, or I think we all do, maybe, that if revenues are going up, the the competitive balance tax should go up with that, right? I mean, again, it's the idea here is that your players are your product. They're not just regular old employees, so when revenue is going up, it's going up in part because of the work they're doing. They should also be a part of that. Not necessarily dollar for dollar, whatever, but, you know, should go up. And it should do that without the extra penalties that the owners have proposed. If they can sort out the CBT this week, I predict that I will be in Jupiter next week. With spring training starting up, and I don't know how it's going to look or what we're all going to be able to do, but uh, I would imagine that, you know, we're going to be full on in the middle of all that here soon. So that's really kind of the news. I mean, I'm sure they talked a lot about more about a lot of things. One of the main things that they talked about again was the pre-arbitration bonus pool, both the amount of money and the number of players. So Evan Drellick reported that, you know, on MLB's side, they raised their offer to two to $20 million. And this is money that would get divided up by the players that are significant contributors playing regularly, but not eligible for arbitration yet. So this, again, this is a way to raise up 
the lowest level of players so that if they're, if they're key contributors, they actually get paid like key contributors rather than being paid the minimum. So they offered $20 million that would go to 30 players. The union has has their offer at $115 million, but they want it for 150 players. So both of those numbers are going to move. The number of players eligible and the amount, and the amount is probably going to be somewhere in that in that ratio, right? So the owners are offering $20 million for 30 players. That's about three quarters of a million dollars per player that would be available in the arbit- in, in this bonus pool that would come from, by the way, not team payrolls, but it would come from this money being thrown in equally by everybody and distributed equally based on performance, and they still have to sort out how they would do that. Um, on the player's side, what they're offering is basically instead of instead of two-thirds, so instead of two-thirds of a million dollars per player, what the, what the players have offered is basically three-quarters of a million dollar, but dollars per player in this pool. So again, the, the number of players is different and the, the dollar amount is different, but the number the dollar amount per player is not that different. So I think once they settle on how many players are going to qualify for this, that other number should settle itself. It's not that far apart. Anyway, that's kind of the main thing that's reported today. And by the way, they're going to meet tomorrow. What do you know? We're going to do this every day. And it does sound like they're going to do this every day this week. Um, so I, again, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to sound optimistic because that's not really where I'm at. I'm still kind of in the, eh, we'll see mode, but I have believed from day one that opening day would happen as scheduled. That opening day scheduled on March 31st would happen. I still believe that today because I'm betting on greed. I don't think owners or players want to give up revenue starting with the with regular season because that's when the money's really on the line for the two sides. That's what I've been betting on since the labor since the arguments between these two sides in 2020 and the return from the COVID shutdown. And I guess we're going to know here in the next mm, six or seven days whether or not that was the correct position. For a lot of reasons, I want that to be the correct position. One, because then I'll feel a little bit smarter about myself, but also because then we'll have baseball starting, which is much more important. Much more important. I don't care about being right about that because to me, it was just obvious anyway. Everybody likes making money. Nobody wants to give away a lot more when they've already given away a ton against their will because of a pandemic. All right, so I want to move on. That's what we know today on that. I want to talk more baseball today. There was a really fantastic piece uh, from Jason Stark in The Athletic today. And, you know, we talked about this a a little bit last week. The parts of of fixing or improving baseball that really are getting ignored in the collective bargaining talks but will probably be revisited once they have all the money stuff in order is improving the product on the field, right? We've been talking about ways. How do we improve the product on the field? Well, Jason Stark did a great job of getting information, getting opinions, and writing up this piece today that is about the shift. And essentially, it answers some questions about whether or not banning slash limiting the shift 
would make any difference at all in improving the quality of the product. So I want to bring some of that to you, including maybe the most interesting number I've seen related to baseball this entire offseason. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. We get to that next up on KMOX. There's a high fly ball. Welcome back to the Meyer Jensen Sports Open Line. And it's a gunner. Big fly, Nolan Arenado. Meyer Jensen, a personal injury law firm, because sometimes the gloves have to come off. MeyerJensen.com. And the Billikens win this one. Touchdown, Kansas City. On America's Sports Voice, KMOX. Oh, we're going to have fun. I want to talk about the shift, and I got good, good information. And by the way, I can't, I cannot tip my cap often enough or with enough deference to Jason Stark of the Athletic on this. I cannot, I cannot pay enough respect to the work that he did on this. Jason is unbelievable. He's very creative. I don't always agree with conclusions that he reaches, but that's not really required of enjoying someone's work. I don't have to agree with conclusions. Uh, but I do agree basically with where he ended up getting with his story today about the shift. And the headline was, what would happen if baseball killed the shift? And one of the things, you know, the, the this falls under the broad umbrella of ways that we, of topics that we're discussing to try to make the game better, right? We want more action. We want the pace to pick up. Most of us don't care about how long the game is. What we care about is how much is happening, right? And there are a lot of different discussions we have to have. And today I'm going to include a couple of them, but I'm going to start with the shift and then I'm going to branch off from there because I think that what we often attribute to the shift 
is actually a problem being caused by something else. So walk with me through this thing. So one of the the areas that's being discussed in baseball, it was experimented with in the minor leagues last year. We've talked, all of us have talked a lot about it. It's been written about a lot too. Could we create more action in the game if we were to eliminate the extreme shifts in baseball? And the better way to phrase it, by the way, is not eliminating the shift because you can't eliminate movement, but you can limit it. So let's talk about limiting the shift. And there have been a number of ways that this that, that have been proposed about this, right? We've talked about the idea of infielders having to have their feet on the dirt rather than playing in the outfield. We've had uh, the, the the conversation about whether about keeping two infielders on each side of second base, like that being kind of the guiding principle. You can't have the second baseman or the third baseman, for that matter, flipping over to the right side of the infield. You can't have the second baseman flipping over to the left side of the infield, right? You can't have three infielders on one side of the ball on one side of the field. So those are the things that we've talked about, like limiting the shift. And it's a great piece that Jason Stark put together. I cannot recommend this enough. If you have a subscription to The Athletic, you should read this if you haven't. It's brilliant. Not because of where it goes, but but, the, but about the process of getting there. Because he talks to guys like Joey Gallo. Joey Gallo hates the shift. Hates it. But not the same way that you think he hates it. He doesn't hate it because ground balls don't become singles. What he hates is that when he bats, there are six fielders in the outfield when he's hitting. That's how they defend him. You've got the second baseman that goes and plays essentially shallow right field. The right fielder is deep and toward the line. The center fielder is deep and toward right center field. The left fielder is playing left center. And then usually the shortstop is standing in shallow center field. So they have six people in the outfield for him. And his argument is, where the hell am I supposed to hit the ball? Now, a lot of us would say, well, you know, if you didn't have to pull everything, you might have, you might, you might get a different alignment, but, and we're going to get more on that in this sec, in this, in this conversation in a minute, because I think that's a big part of this. But banning or limiting the shift is not going to have the effect that you think it will based on what the numbers are telling us. This, none of, th- this part here is not my opinion. This is the, these are the numbers. This is the data that Jason Stark has in the piece. And I think it's important to understand it. So I tweeted about this earlier after I read the piece, and it's really good. So last year, and, and I'm going to set you up a little bit. Okay, this is a setup. And I'm admitting that up front. But last year, 2021, 4,802 hits were taken away by the shift. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Like 4,802 hits taken away by the shift. That's dramatic, isn't it? How about this, though? How about this counter to that from the Bill James handbook? And we all agree that Bill James is is right analytics guy. I mean, he's he's not anecdote guy. He's not like, well, I saw this happen three times, so it means it's happening all the time. No, no, he's counting these things. He and his people, his company is counting these things. So I just mentioned that. 4,802 hits taken away by the shift in 2021. How about this as a counter? 3,946 hits that were only hits Because the shift was in place. In other words, the number off the end of the bat for the left-handed hitter. 
the, the, the bunt for a hit with everybody on the right side of the field. So if, if teams were in a traditional defense, these would have all been outs. But they were only hits because the defense was in a, in a dramatic shift. So again, think about those numbers. 4,800 hits taken away by the shift. 3,950 hits given back by the shift. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but that sounds like about 850 lost hits, right? Because the shift took away 4,800. The shift gave back another 3,950. So we have about 850 remaining hits lost based on defensive shifting. So, again, does that sound like a lot to you? Because here's the thing. That's over 4,858 games. So I, I busted out my telephone because it's got a calculator on that. And here's the thing. So according to this, 0.99 hits per game are lost because of the shift. So basically one hit per game, right? One hit per game is eaten up by the shift. But 0.81 hits per game are given back by the shift. So when you do all of this and you play it out over a long, one hit every five games is the net loss to offenses because of the shift. One hit every five games lost due to the shift in Major League Baseball. Does that sound like a lot to you? If they were to restore those hits, does that sound like something that would change your experience as a fan? One extra hit every five games? Because that's what the numbers are telling you. Those are absolute measurements. Hits taken away by the shift. Hits that happened only because the shift was on. And again, what the net loss is, is a hit every five games in Major League Baseball. Now, here's the thing. I know why we react the way that we do to this. And I say we because I do it too. We baseball fans, and I, I kind of settled on 35 and older. Those of us that are baseball fans that are 35 years old and older have spent our entire lives believing and seeing that certain balls, when they come off the bat, are hits, Right? My whole life, a ground ball up the middle is a base hit. As soon as you see it off the bat, past the pitcher, your reaction is, that's a hit. And when an infielder is standing there waiting for it, you're like, what? That's supposed to be a hit. So we have this reaction based on what, our, what, our, what we've seen our whole lives. Our whole life, a ground ball up the middle is a hit. Our whole life, a line drive to right field is a hit. But it's jarring to us. It's shocking to our system when it's not. Because when you came up as a kid and you hit that ball, it was a hit. When you were in high school and you hit that ball, it was a hit every time. When you were watching on TV as a kid or as a young adult, that ball 20 years ago, that ball was a hit. But it's not anymore. But what we end up, because we're humans, we end up mixing up something that's not the same as being not as good. We, 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 we have overvalued or overstated the impact of the shift because when we see it, 
It's jarring to us. We don't expect it. I mean, I still do it. I'm 50. I cover baseball. I've covered baseball for 25 years. I can't even count how many games I've been to. And I still have that reaction when somebody smokes a one hopper up the middle and an infielder standing there. I always go, hey, it's a hit. Oh, no, it's not. I mean, I still have that reaction. And I think that's part of what the shift has done. And Rob Manfred had an interesting point on this. And this quote was in Jason Stark's piece today. He said, essentially, if you if you limit the shift or you make it so that the game, that like the defenders are playing the way that they did 20, 30, 40 years ago, the way Manfred put it was, the game looks like it did when I was 12. That's correct. The game would look like it used to be on those particular plays. But what we can see from looking at the massive amounts of data that are gathered on this is it wouldn't change the amount of action that we're seeing. It wouldn't have a material impact on the quality of the product based on what we see in terms of the results. So I think that we've kind of lost track of this argument. Like we think that banning the shift or limiting it will add all of these hits, and it will, but it's going to take back others, right? And this is the point of the Bill James research. He's showing you that there are almost 4,000 hits last year that were only hits because the shift was on. And in a normal defensive alignment, they wouldn't have been hits. Meanwhile, the shift took away 4,800. So again, it's not a, a huge net gain or net loss, I should say, for, for, for offensive players, right? Offense loses 800 hits over 4,854 games, one every five games. Is that a big enough problem to change the rules? I would argue no. That that's not the problem. But I have, a, I have the answer to what is the problem. I just don't think we have a way to fix it. The real problem with the game, with the way the game is played, with our experience watching it, the real problem, and I talked about this like three weeks ago on, in, in a different way, but the real problem isn't ground balls from left-handed pull hitters that aren't singles anymore. The real problem is too many swings and misses. We do not have enough balls in play. That's the problem. And that's another part of this story that I want to get into. Uh, this is really a fascinating thing because the problem isn't not enough singles because of the shift. The problem is not enough balls put in play. When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we are all realizing that the quality of our air, especially our indoor air, is really darn important. In 30 minutes, Puro Air will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at GetPuroAir.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. And let's get into that next up on KMOX. There's a high fly ball. Welcome back to the Meyer Jensen Sports Open Line. And it's a gunner. Big fly, Nolan Arenado. 
Jensen, a personal injury law firm, because sometimes the gloves have to come off. MeyerJensen.com. And the Billikens win this one. Touchdown, Kansas City! On America's Sports Voice, KMOX. All right, let's dive back into this conversation about the on-field product in baseball. And again, I I gave you all of the information on the shift. Great work, by the way, uh, again, from Jason Stark of The Athletic, who had a lot of this information in his piece today, which is what my jumping off point was. Highly recommend reading it if you haven't. The title of the story is What Would Happen If Baseball Killed the Shift? And as I just outlined for you with those numbers, not much would change. (laughs) <laughs> there would be right right now there is a net loss of 800 hits a year or at least in 2021 there was a net loss of 800 hits because of the shift but that's over nearly 5000 games so again it's about one every one hit lost every 5 games that won't make a noticeable change also when we talk about the shift by the way I didn't get to this last segment but we always ignore the outfield part of this we only talk about the infield shift Outfields shift, and they have been shifting for generations out there, way more so than on the infield. So are we talking about limiting them too? Are we going to draw lines in the outfield as to where the outfielders have to stay? Do they have a little box that they have to start in? Because that's where the doubles and triples disappear, guys. You know, the, the, the shifting isn't just about taking away ground ball singles. Outfielders move to take away the gaps or to take away... The places where hitters, the particular hitter at the plate at the time, hits the ball most often. So they're going to shift too, which takes away extra base hits. Why don't we talk about that? If we're talking about limiting the shift, the first thing we have to talk about is limiting the outfielders' movements because that takes away the fun stuff. That takes away the doubles and the triples. But I don't think that really make, that that doesn't make any sense to me. The limiting of defense doesn't make any sense to me. What does make sense is talking about trying to get more baseballs put into play, more action, right? We want more action in the game, more to look at. Well, guess what, guys? Defensive plays are action. We got to stop thinking of this in terms of hits and start thinking of it in terms of action, something happening in front of our eyes that isn't a walk or a strikeout. But really, it's the strikeout. Nobody minds walks. That's the start of a rally. You know, people are like, I'm tired of the true three outcomes, the home run, the walk, or the... Nobody's tired of home runs. Nobody. Nobody. You can say you are, you're full of it. Because when when a home run is hit at a game you're in attendance at, you stand and cheer. Everybody else does too. Nobody's tired of home runs. Now, people are tired, I think, of guys selling out for home runs, right? And I would agree, by the way, I don't think that the hitter's approach is inconsequentialness. It absolutely matters. But we we put too much on that because you can't legislate that. You can't say, hey, hitters, you have to learn to hit it the other way. It's a rule. Like, you can't, you can't enforce that. So when we're talking about this, banning the shift or limiting it isn't going to lead to more contact. It's not going to lead to more balls in play. And we can blame approach all we want, but that's pointless because we can't change that by rule. So we're having all of the wrong conversations about this is my point. 
limiting the shift isn't going to change the quality of the product. Having more balls in play would because there's more action. Even a ground out is a lot more exciting. It's something to look at other than a strikeout, right? An outfielder making a really great catch in the gap. That's fun. That's action. What we need is action. And the problem is trying to figure out how we're going to do that. Because, sure, you can talk all you want about how hitters try too hard to hit home. I say, by the way, if you limit the shift, do you know what kind of hitter really benefits the most from it? The three true outcome hitter. The guy that sells out to pull is the one that's going to benefit from that. So what you'd be doing is further incentivizing that approach by limiting the shift. And if you don't believe me, and I I, I'm, I, I mean, I, I understand why you might not, th- that's also the, the opinion expressed by some of the folks in Jason Stark's piece and a front office official at that. How about this? This is the front office official of, as Jason Stark put it, a data-driven team. He said, if you ban the shift, the hitters who benefit the most are those left-handed three true outcome types. And he said, there's a reason Joey Gallo loves this idea. So do you want to incentivize that approach more? Because if you do, ban the shift. Do you want to reward the left-handed hitter who sells out for power? Because if you want to reward that behavior... Banning the shift will do that because there's less penalty to being that guy if you ban the shift. And it's funny because a lot of folks, and I agree with people, by the way, I think that more players need to have a more balanced approach at the plate. We need to have situational hitting become more important. Runner on second base, one out, stop trying to hit a home run, drive the runner in. You know, runner on third, less than two outs. Get the runner home. Don't worry about trying to hit another home run. Like, I, I'm down with that 100%. But banning the shift won't do that. And you can't legislate it. That's the problem. You can't make a rule that says you have to alter your approach. So what do you do? I don't know what you do, man. I mean, look, pitch, pitching is just harder now than it's ever been before. Harder literally like velocity, right? Nope. There has never been a time in baseball history where more guys throw as hard as they do now. We got dudes throwing a hundo on every team. Every team. Every team has an eight-man bullpen. And they all have pitches that are designed in a pitching lab so that they look exactly the same two-thirds of the way home. And in the last 10, 15, 20 feet, they go, whoop, different directions. You should follow the Pitching Ninja on Twitter if you want to see the graphics of that. It's pretty, it's phenomenal. So you've got pitchers that throw harder. You've got a better understanding of how to develop and create pitches in what is essentially a lab atmosphere. You've got pitcher usage that's changed, right? Because guys don't go seven or eight innings. No, no, no. It's go all out for as long as you can. And then once you're tired, we'll bring in somebody else and they'll go all out for an inning, and then the next guy will go all out for an inning, and then the next guy will go all out for an inning. So the usage of pitchers has changed. So guys throw harder, their stuff is nastier, and you're seeing more different pitchers per game than at any time in history. And it's so amazing to me that people's solution is, just go the other way. All right, but let's not forget the fact that Power is what gets paid. 
So you're actively telling players to pursue a skill that gets them paid less. Nobody's drafting contact hitters in the first round. Go look at all the top 100 lists out there right now for prospects and tell me how many of those top 100 prospects are singles hitters. And I'm going to tell you, good luck finding one. That's not how it works. Power is what is paid in Major League Baseball. So you're telling hitters that they should do what will get them paid less. Like the last guy you could think of that's actually quote-unquote a singles hitter that was paid any real kind of money is probably Ichiro. But he was also like a gold glove outfielder, so he was an elite defensive player. And he was an extreme contact guy. I mean, you know, he hit 311 for his career. And in his prime was hitting 330, 340. Funny, though, he was never the highest paid player in baseball. He never got paid as much as the power, guys. I wonder why that is. Oh, yeah, because teams value power more than they value singles. They just do. On base and power are what they value. That's what gets paid. So you're telling me that we should be counseling players like guys in college or guys in high school or guys in the minor leagues. Hey, guys, you know what you should really be doing? You should be developing that skill that doesn't get you paid. <laughs> like, what are you thinking about? Yes, you can be a contact hitter. There are contact hitters. They exist. You know, y- Yadier Molina doesn't strike out a whole lot. He's a contact hitter. But he's not an elite hitter. He had years where he was pretty good, though. But with all of these circumstances, this is the problem that baseball is facing. You can't force hitters to a certain approach, so we can't say Major League Baseball take this action and it will fix this problem. How do you stop the pitchers from being better than they've ever been before when it comes to velocity and movement? And, of course, how do you tell teams, hey, guys, yeah, no more of this nine-man bullpen stuff. (laughs) You're not allowed to train all these guys to throw hard and give different looks to everybody every time around. I was talking to a guy that is a professional hitter yesterday. We talked a lot yesterday about this stuff. And he plays for a very analytics-based franchise. And we were talking about this. He's like, man, he goes, even in the minor leagues, a lot of times late in the game, you're going to see a pitcher whose strengths perfectly match your weaknesses. So if you're bad at hitting soft stuff away, they're going to bring out that guy that throws change-ups away from you. If you're not good on the fastball in, they're going to bring in a hard thrower who can throw the ball in on you. And in the major leagues, we see that all the time. It's not just left on left, right on right. It's, wow, this guy doesn't hit breaking balls. Let's bring in the breaking ball pitcher for him. Finally, this is the money quote to me about the whole approach thing. You guys would all agree, I think, that Freddie Freeman's a pretty good hitter. That he's a well-rounded hitter, too. He's not the three true outcome guy. He hits for some average. Here's his quote on the whole go the other way thing. He said, he said everyone's like, just hit the ball the other way. And he goes, um, so I'm trying to cover five pitches. They're all moving. One is like 98 miles an hour. And I'm just going to be able to do what I want and hit a ball to the left side. It's not that easy. I wish it was. I'd do it more often. It's not that easy. Good luck going the other way with 98 on your hands. Followed by 81 changeup at your shins on the outside corner, which you're going to roll over because you're guarding against that 98 in on your hands. And I got a couple more quick thoughts on this when we come back on KMOX. 
There's a high fly ball. Welcome back to the Meyer Jensen Sports Open Line. And it's a gunner. Big fly, Nolan Arenado. Meyer Jensen, a personal injury law firm. Because sometimes the gloves have to come off. MeyerJensen.com. And the Billikens win this one. Touchdown, Kansas City. On America's Sports Voice, KMOX. All right, we're going to wrap it up here in a couple of minutes. And I just I find a lot of these discussions interesting about making changes in baseball and how, you know, how so much of what people want to see is what they saw when they were kids or what they saw when they were younger. And a couple of things to remember about that. One, everything seems better when you're younger. <laughs> like a lot of things that I like now were a lot more fun when I was 24. A lot of things that I loved as a kid are not as exciting to me as they now as they were then. And we, we partly have to remember that what the game looks like now is different, and different isn't necessarily bad. Now, I will say, too many strikeouts is bad because it's not there isn't much happening for everybody to look at. It's a sport. I mean, like for football, for example, the, the NFL. I, I think you've you've all probably seen these studies, but do you know how much time is is actually used on running plays in the NFL during a three hour and fifteen minute broadcast? Do you know how much of that time is the ball in play? It's like seventeen minutes. Seventeen minutes of game action in three hours and fifteen minutes of an NFL game, and nobody cares. And you know why? Because when the ball is snapped, there's action every time. People are running into each other. People are chasing the quarterback. Wide receivers are running down the field. Running backs trying to make dudes miss. There's action every play. And then, of course, on TV, in between all those plays, you're seeing like three different angles of the replay. So you're always seeing something happening. And in baseball, you're not. And I think that, you know, that, that, reducing the number of strikeouts that we have in the game is important to do. Like, it's a great focus. And by the way, keep this keep this in, in your mind. Teams are starting to scout differently and promote players and teach different skills. We are seeing the hit tool gaining value as opposed to the power tool. With the idea being, if you draft a player who can really hit, that doesn't strike out a lot but can really hit and knows the strike zone, you can always get them on a strength program and, help, and and teach them to hit the ball in the air for a little more power. It's a lot harder to go the other route and take the power guy and teach him how to go the other way or to hit the ball in the gap or whatever. It is changing. Teams are changing their scouting. And by the way, guys, hitters are going to catch up. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, 10 years maybe. Where people, eh, maybe a little bit more than that, but like the mid to late 2000s, the big worry was, is there too much offense in baseball? Is there enough pitching to go around? Right? The problem was always the worry about pitching. Now we have the opposite problem. Because what happened was, everybody adapted. We learned a lot more about how the body works, how to throw harder, how to throw harder more often, we know what allows you to throw harder, how the body's supposed to work, the kinetic chain, all that stuff we know. We know how to t- have pitches tunnel better. 
so that the slider and the fastball look the same until the last 15 feet, and then they go opposite directions. And hitters are catching up, man. They are working on these things at all levels of baseball to help hitters catch up to the pitchers. But it doesn't happen overnight. It is going to happen, though. It will level off. If you look at the history of Major League Baseball, we've had hitters and pitchers eras at various points throughout history. Big home run era during and after the Babe Ruth run, followed by a pitching era, followed by a more hitting era, followed by another pitching era. It's gone back and forth, and the hitters will catch up, but not overnight. Great stuff, guys. Thank you for jumping in. I think we have a short show tomorrow for Billiken's basketball, but we'll have a lot more to do later on in the week. But in the meantime, keep your ear to the ground on all these labor talks. Hopefully we'll have something done later on this week. Looking forward to catching up with you guys again, at least for a little bit tomorrow here on Sports Open Line. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns and Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. We all agree that reducing carbon emissions is a good thing. And once again, Toyota is leading the way. We hear a lot about fully electric vehicles, and Toyota has them with more on the way. But we also know a BEV is not for everyone, whether it's because of cost, range, or concern about finding a charging station when you need it. Plus, the raw materials used to manufacture batteries are limited. Enter Beyond Zero, Toyota's vision for a carbon-neutral future in vehicles, and in manufacturing plants, too, in the years ahead. The materials used to make just one long-range battery for an EV could be used to make batteries for six plug-in hybrids or 90 gas-electric hybrids. That's why Toyota's position today is electrified diversified, empowering you to choose how to reduce your own carbon footprint with the vehicle that's right for you. A hybrid, plug-in hybrid, or battery EV. So shop, learn more, and get details at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Toyota, let's go places.